So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Kind of a sub point of that is the explosion of mental health care, which has really was a huge mental health epidemic before COVID, as some people would say, that's been exacerbated with COVID as well. And some people used to not really think of that as quote health care and mental health may include everything from a meditation app to psychiatric care. And it's quite a spectrum, but thinking about mental health as connected to quote core health care and then that being a, just a huge, huge opportunity and a space with massive need and opportunity for innovation. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Carolyn Witte. Carolyn, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So for people that don't know what TIA is, can you give us a little background? Sure. So TIA, the most zoomed out uh, 30,000 foot view is a different kind of healthcare company that's transforming everything you think about the way the healthcare system works from how it looks, to how it feels, to how it operates, to where and how you get care for women and rethinking what the healthcare system would be like if women were at the center of it. So this means we build real world doctor's office, yes, bricks and mortar, build technology products for patients and providers, deliver healthcare services virtually, think about how to educate women about really important things like COVID vaccines and postpartum depression, and really completely rethink how people think about health and well-being with the goal of creating a world in which women can get and stay truly well. Well, I want to talk a lot about this on the show today, but maybe we'll back up for a minute. Can you talk a little bit about your time at Google? Sure. So I like to say grew up from grew up at Google. It was the only real job I had before diving into startup land and very much has shaped my approach to building a company and thinking about consumer brands, user-centric design, all these sorts of things. I had the privilege of working at a really unique, working in a really unique part of Google, this place called the Creative Lab. That's sort of like an IDO within Google, this like incubation arm type of thing that incubated new products and services, made all those Super Bowl commercials that make you cry, and really kind of acted as this translational bridge between these like brilliant engineers and the lay human in the world who's like using Google Maps on their phone. And through that, I learned a few things that I really shaped my approach to entrepreneurship and building companies. One was the importance of storytelling and thinking about radical simplification in particular, particularly on complex things. So my favorite Google interview question that we like have a similar version at TIA or that we used to interview for is like, how do you explain the cloud to your grandma? 
and in my part of Google, like, you know, explaining something super complicated like that to your grandma was really important. And at, at TIA, we asked, we like to have similar questions, like how would you explain, you know, interoperability or an electronic health record to, you know, your math teacher or whatever it is. And I think healthcare is so, so complicated and we need to radically simplify it. The second is thinking is I kind of became obsessed with building interdisciplinary teams. And my particular part of Google that I was so lucky to work in was this hodgepodge mix of designers and engineers and writers and filmmakers and creative thinkers of all types who kind of came together to think about problems in a really differentiated way. And it was this kind of myriad of perspectives, experience and disciplines that you didn't even see or experience in Google proper where normal teams were engineering teams or design teams or what have you. And through that, I kind of, as I sought to reimagine healthcare end to end, I've taken a similar approach of saying, okay, to really solve complex problems, you need all these perspectives. What would it be like if we paired a graphic designer with an MD and a, you know, a full stack engineer with a PhD in reproductive genomics and put them together in a room and told them to go think about something. And so that was the second thing I really learned there. But overall, it, it was an amazing experience and one that I'm very grateful for. It's interesting. Uh, the first Googler we had on the show here was uh, Maline Dastrup. And she, and then she invited me out to Mountain View and went on the tours and stuff. So I went out to California. as fun. But it was interesting. I remember going down this hallway with her. There was just like a lineup of projects that never went anywhere. It was like a museum of projects that failed, you know? Yeah. And, so and like, it, it's interesting you hear stats and stuff, but for me, it was this different experience to see like how many things didn't go anywhere and to like to actually see them, you know? And it was, obviously wasn't seeing the whole project, but got to see like a, a glimpse. And it was interesting, like people talk about an attitude of not being like over-identifying with your first idea, but then to be there and experience what that looked like at Google was was unique for me, at least. Yeah, it's very, I think one of the things that shocked me, that shocked me to the core when starting TIA that I didn't learn at Google actually was how to fail fast. And because you have endless resources there, so there's so many projects that die, but you just like throw more engineers at them or you just keep iterating and you can spend the year and you, there's no like real consequence for failure, which is so different than building a startup where like you are going to run out of money and like you don't have time and money or like you're, you, you don't, can't just keep iterating or be like, oh, I failed. Like, I'll just try again. So that was like one big thing that my co-founder like came from a more startup background out of very different, I didn't even know what MVP was or like any of these things. So it's really interesting. And the, the you know, the, the second on the, uh, in the inverse of that though, is like thinking about, you know, having huge, huge ideas and, and not being, you know, having the confidence to bring them, bring them forth to the world. I think one thing that's hard about Google was with scale comes like no idea unless it has insane scale or the potential to have insane scale is even like considered, right? It's not tenable. Where at Tia, we've taken the approach very much that to do things that don't scale uh, in the beginning, keyword, and then figure out how, and then once you figure out how to, how they work, how to scale them. But it's a very different approach to, I would say, innovation and product development. I think that like startups are required to take versus a big behemoth like Google, who has both different constraints in terms of like to move the needle in their business and needs to be so scalable, but also, you know, not as many risks in terms of they can, a lot of things can fail and nothing, no one's ever going to know about it except the people that maybe walk down that hallway. Interesting. Will you talk about, you know, you, you referenced IDEO. What do you think it is that, I mean, there's a lot of people that work on innovation. This whole show, we've done almost 500 episodes asking people about innovation, but IDEO holds a special place in people's minds. What, what do you think it is about them? 
So as someone who learned to think in sort of like the design arm of tech, that like narrow, more narrow IDO-esque part of the tech world, I'm biased towards the user-centric design approach to problem solving, not design in terms of like designing a table or graphic design or like actual like being a quote literal designer, but the ability to think through a design first lens And I think that's what IDEO is really famous for. And a lot of people have kind of adopted, myself included, that philosophy for solving problems and thinking about the world. And it's just a very different way to think about problems. It's very much like jumping to the end oftentimes and thinking about the dream versus the moonshot and then working your way backwards to like, okay, like once you can paint the picture of the future, what it should be, then how might we get there versus, you know, a more incremental stair-step approach. And I've always been biased towards that view and the ways in which it allows you to come up with new ideas that you wouldn't have thought of or might be possible. And I think when you think about sort of really complicated industries like healthcare that have been very much devoid of innovation for a very long time, people often ask me, like, I can't believe you're not a doctor and you like open doctor's offices and like employ physicians which are so expensive and malpractice and insurance and like all these like hairball issues. And like, I can't believe you did that as like someone who didn't know anything about healthcare. And it's very much because I didn't know anything about healthcare. And I kind of deployed an IDEO, like jump to the end, like blank canvas. What would a doctor's office be like, look like, feel like if it actually was designed for women at the center of it that allowed me to get there and create something that if I knew what I knew now, I never would have done. And so in many ways, sometimes I think the IDEO playbook is like, you can actually take this design-centric playbook and apply it to any problem, any industry, And you don't actually need to be the subject matter expert, but what you learn to do is to listen, to deeply understand who your user is, to think about how to solve problems, regardless of what that problem is, and come up with, I think, solutions more often than not that someone who actually may understand the problem more deeply than you may not come up with because they know too much and are going to come up with 10,000 reasons as why that's not going to work that someone who's further removed doesn't see. You know, I'm such a fan of theirs. I, I got to go take a class at their New York office once. And I went to Stanford and took some uh, took a class at the D school and, you know, read their books. I've had some of their co-authors of some of their books on the show and stuff. And I think it kind of ties back to a question that you said you really like about how would you explain the cloud to your grandma? Can you talk about why you like that question? I like the question because I'm obsessed with simplifying things and forcing, forcing, teaching, hopefully, everyone that I work with the importance of radical simplification. And I don't think simplification is an important skill, I think, for leaders and CEOs and founders um, and people that do communications and writing and obviously like those sorts of things. But I actually think like it's really important for everyone uh, to some degree uh, to be able to do that. And as one of my mentors, the leader or someone I learned a lot from at the Creative Lab, named Andy Burnt, who's the, the leader there, used to say in a similar exercise, like if you haven't, you have to take every project, like new product that maybe died, you saw that like died in the hallway at Google, had a poster, this exercise at the creative lab where every single project, whether it was making like a new phone or like a a new app or a Super Bowl ad or whatever it is, you had to create a poster, uh, like a literal, a physical poster. And on the poster could have like a sketch. It could have three words. It could have a hundred words. It could be it was like a poster. It could be a, a like a 30 second video clip, but it was this idea of 
distilling something down to its core essence. And you came up with like a hundred posters before like a project was ever like greenlit. It was almost the like the brief in some ways. And the the whole exercise was an exercise in simplification. And if you couldn't, the idea is like, you can't distill the cloud or Android or the future of the web down to a poster, then you probably haven't thought about it hard enough. And like, you really don't know why it matters. And you really don't know what the essence is. And so it's an exercise that is not about limited to quote creative people who know how to make pretty posters, but an exercise in simplifying something down to its core essence to understand why it's different, why it matters and why it should exist in the world. And I think that's an important toolkit that everyone who's interested in innovation and solving problems should, should learn. You know, I just started this book that is related a bit. It's called The Three-Minute Rule by Bryant Pinvik. I don't know how to say his last name right. But it's this TV producer who, like, after, you know, 15 or 20 years in the industry, figured out, like, we're super overcomplicating things in our pitches. And he, anyways, he just explains this way of, like, how a pitch that normally takes weeks, he landed in, like, a three-minute thing because they worked so hard on simplifying. He called the head of this network and it ended up being this huge mega show, right? And then he goes on to lands like dozens and dozens and dozens of shows as a showrunner off of this distilling thing. And it is interesting. I think about like in my private equity days, like when we would hire an engineer and we were trying to do something, you know, we're doing something non-traditional for the portfolio companies. And I would ask them how it works. If they started talking and then they said, it's really complicated. I was like, this isn't our guy. If he, like, we would only pick guys that, that like knew it well enough that they could give me like the elementary school version. And I wondered if that's where you're going with the question. Yeah, very much so. And it, of course it's complicated. And I, the hard problem, and I think that like the more you learn about something, the more you get into the details and I'm detail obsessed and like you like miss the forest through the trees. And I think that's the thing actually as a founder that can be like your double-edged sword is you have to one, be detail obsessed and know the details. You can't not know details to build an innovative, like game-changing product or business. Like it's all about the details and the complexity and the hairball. But you also have to be able to take a step back and like see the forest, see the trees and explain it to a third grader or your grandma or whatever for it to like actually work as a business and work in, you know, for lay humans in the world. And so I think that kind of there's this juxtaposition between being the the minutia and the complexity and understanding that and know what details matter. But then like knowing like which details matter to your user or your customer or your investor or whoever it is that needs to understand the thing, your employees. And that both of those skills, I think together are really critical to being an entrepreneur and building a successful business. Yeah, I love it. You know, I was, as I was doing research on you, well, I'm going to ask this question first, you know, Forbes 30 under 30, Inc. 100 women, these, you know, these different awards. What do you think you've done differently? Why do you think you've, your startups actually lasted? I think you're almost year four here, right? What do you, what do you think you've done different that not everybody else has done? So Tia has not been, a, despite the many accolades I've been, you know, honored to receive a quick, like, you know, overnight success, I guess they call it in Silicon Valley. We've had, we're very much a story of iteration and evolution and survival. And I think I'm proud of that. Now that I'm here, we're still in survival mode to be clear, Um, but we, you know, have clear product market fit, know where we're going and have a huge opportunity in front of us to, I think, really be a category defining women's healthcare company. And it's taken us a long road, as some might say, 
in the venture community, depends how you look at it, to, to get here. And my own personal story, as well as Tia's story, is one of, I would describe connecting the dots backwards. I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was one of those people who's like, I want to start a company. I'm just like looking for the idea. The idea just like came to me and I became obsessed with it and started peeling back the many layers of the onion that is healthcare and started, just started going. I knew I wanted to build it, you know, the go-to trusted women's healthcare brand and platform. And I knew how I wanted women to feel, but I did not know what our product was. I did not know what our business model was. I didn't know who our customer was. I didn't know how healthcare worked and kind of iterated my way to figuring that out. And so I had a very different approach that I think some might take to building a business and one that I think is authentic to its core from like founder product market fit perspective. I, I built Tia for myself in many ways on my own problems and have been driven by an obsession with that problem and a, a detailed understanding of it that grows every day and kind of an, you know, an obsessive obsession with that problem and the ability to like push a massive boulder up the mountain forever and ever and ever and continue to do so. And I've grown a lot individually and I, I think we built a company that can thrive and continue to overcome challenges and, you know, escape death a hundred times over. <laughs> every every time I think we're, we're done with that chapter, it comes back and we do it again. It happened when we closed our Series A financing and the world imploded with COVID again. But that's, that's Tia's story. It's one of iteration, survival, and evolution in many ways in response to in response to what women want, but like a consistent North Star. And I think one thing you always have to struggle with as an entrepreneur that maybe makes Tia different from other companies is like when to change path and when not to change path. And I think we have taken, describe myself as a contrarian, more of a contrarian view on healthcare and on building companies. I think then traditional healthcare founders that um, I don't look like and Tia is not a traditional healthcare company that I think makes our story differentiated. Yeah. You know, one of the interviews I was listening to, you talked about kind of this passion of of using data to help, you know, both providers and patients differently. Can you talk about what that looks like for you? Yeah. So data is a big theme in healthcare, has been for a while. We often, I've been watching the, I'm sure everyone, you've seen the Instagram photos of people getting their COVID vaccine and the physical card that's documenting their vaccine, which in 2021, when we're now in, like completely blows my mind. And is like the craziest thing I, I can possibly imagine in a world of electronic everything that we're tracking COVID vaccines on physical pieces of paper. So like on the spectrum, you have like personalized medicine and AI and, you know, like robotics and like pre precision everything. And on the other hand, you can't track like your vaccine, like on a QR code on your phone. Like it's just so crazy. So there's like huge amounts of data, but also massive data disconnects. And some people would say too much data around certain things or data that when they say too much data, they mean data that isn't, people haven't figured out how to make useful. In other ways, like the COVID vaccine example of like uh, huge data gaps that make really basic things so hard that don't need to be hard, that aren't technology gaps, but operational ones. And so with that meta <laughs> landscape, I think the way some approaches to thinking about a data that we've taken at TIA, we believe in personalized medicine, and I would say more broadly, a personalized care delivery, which is kind of a perspective that says we need to build for the person, not just the patient, and think about medicine inclusive of a broader toolkit that accounts for a whole person's needs. 
that they that are outside maybe the realm of the healthcare system or the traditional sort of medical practice of medicine and think about how do we give us an example really quick on that yeah so i call this people-based care sorry for the slight tangent here but it's important for how we think about data too so people-based care is a notion that you treat the person not just the patient and that there's a lot of different things they call the social determinants of health is kind of a healthcare jargony way of describing it that may impact uh, a person's access uh, or use of healthcare or lack thereof. So this could include things like access to healthy food or childcare or transportation, all these things in our instance we build for women. So how might a working mom access healthcare or not access healthcare uh, different than you know her male partner who is not the primary caregiver, things like that. And so when you think about building new types of care delivery for the person, not the patient, you're going to build for the working mom who has in all of the logistics that surround that, not just the sort of, you know, hormonal differences between a female patient and a male patient. So that's an example. And I think COVID in many ways has revealed with the disproportionate outcomes, harrowing disproportionate outcomes amongst different groups, specifically people of color, the need to build personalized care delivery models for different populations that are inclusive of, but not limited to the practice of medicine. And when we start to think about data around these things, how do access to things like nutrition or healthy food or childcare or job security or all these things impact actually someone's like, you know, medical state is super interesting. And right now we think about medical data and then all this other type of data in like a totally separate realm. Yet we know that these social issues are, you know, very, are, have, how do I say this? A very strong impact and can, you know, predictive can predict in many ways someone's health outcomes. And we and we could only track people throughout their lives to understand, you know, their access to nutrition from, you know, their early childhood years through their life and education and jobs and all these things. We could build a lot more predictive models that could help people get in stage really well. So that's a little bit of my tangent on dreams of what we could do from a health data perspective and thinking about data, not just from a medical perspective, but a person, whole person perspective. And and so what does that look like? What are you like, why do providers like working with you? What are you doing different? What are, you know, I know you work yeah. with big insurance companies, stuff like this. Like yeah. what's, what do they like about working with you as a, as opposed to, you know, run of the mill folks? So I'll give you an example, just building on that. So say we were just actually able to collect a lot of that data and DIA does. So the big thing is you realize that a traditional, like what's called electronic health record and EHR, they collect medical data more often than not, but very little, sometimes, you know, basic demo data, but they don't ask you questions about your personal life or like who you are as a person. TIA collects that data in a structured way, makes it available to our providers. And so, for example, we ask all of our patients about their history of trauma, about chronic stress in their life, about their partnerships, their work, all these things that, again, aren't considered, quote, medical data. And we give that data to our providers and it helps them personalize the way they diagnose and treat a patient. So that's one you know, example of that. We ask our patients kind of this mushy question. I call it every single patient about what optimal health means to them. And it, that along with the history of trauma before they walk into an exam room or a virtual exam room to treat a patient. And it gives you a provider a sense for is this person that just like wants their prescription and to head out the door. They don't want to talk about the meaning of life and meditation and this or that. And like, you know, what health and balance really means. And it gives you a sense for different flavors and what is personalized care and how all these things that may be happening at home or at work or in your relationships can truly 
can, from a clinical perspective, impact your health outcomes. And so we give the way we actually collect the data, but most importantly, give it to providers and connect it to the actual practice of medicine. So this is the operational side of it is really different. And so when you think about the building for patients and providers, it's about data collection, but also the application of that. And we learned very early on that too, when I mentioned earlier that too much, there's too much data in healthcare, what this means is all this data is like stuck in EHRs and isn't integrated in a useful way into a clinical workflow that allows a provider to use it. So it's not glanceable. It's not actionable. It's not personalized. And our chief medical officer early on said to us, when we were building our TMD provider facing apps said like, what if, what if we took the same like user centric design delight and, you know, surprise principles that, you know, we take to building beautiful consumer apps and things like that. And actually built those for doctors. Even your, even your offices are attractive. Like you, like that could be like a cosmetics sales yeah. place or something. <laughs> it does not look like a doctor's office. It's true. And even there, we take in the realm of designing for the two users, the patient, the provider. Our, you know, it, the last year has shown the really horrendous state, the way we treat those on the front line, those actually practicing medicine in these like horrific states without protective gear and all this crazy stuff. Well, they're working more often than not in these environments without windows in their own break rooms and all we, we obsess around the patient waiting room. What about the provider waiting room? I mean, so we've taken these same, everything we do at TIA, we think about through this dual two user lens. Uh, and how do we build for really, you know, under like taking, tr- trying to act on our belief that to fix healthcare for women, we need to fix it for providers. And that means designing, whether it's technical products or physical spaces for the patient provider alike. And I think if we do that, we can do something that I'm really excited about, which is putting this, like putting relationships back in healthcare uh, and making healthcare really about relationships between people and technology, just simply a tool that enables and doesn't kind of come in between those relationships. You know, when I was 10, we moved from a city of a million to a farm town of 3,500. Wow. And our my family had been in that farm town for like six generations, like over a hundred years. Okay. So we were like related to half the town, but all of a sudden, like the doctors, there's like three doctors in town. Right. And so all my action sports injuries growing up, like it was one of the three guys that, you know, one of them I had actually had actually delivered me like, wow. you know, yeah. at, right. Um, before my parents had moved away from that farm town. And stuff. So it was like, like you really knew it. Like you saw him uptown, like it, like it was like a genuine relationship, you know? And yeah. then my years living in LA and other places it, you know, that that's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing it, with the way regular systems are set up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we talk a lot about the canonical patient-provider relationship, particularly that women have had, which is historically with their OBGYN. And like my moms had the same, We've our favorite joke is like, what is LTV in women's health? Because like my moms had the same OBGYN for 30 years. And that's like really common. But like me and my friends, like I haven't had a consistent doctor since high school. Like my last consistent doctor was my pediatrician probably. And then like until starting Tia, every time I needed to go to a doctor, I would like go on ZocDoc and find an OBGYN or a primary care provider, like go to some random doctor that I had no relationship with, that didn't know me, that I felt like, you know, I was a number. I got what I needed and we went out the door. And then until you have a problem, then it kind of works, but it's kind of a super transactional by design thing. And then you have a problem and suddenly all you want is that relationship and you realize you're just a number in this anonymous healthcare system. And you're like, wait, but where, like, where is that relationship? And so what we really thought is like, okay, so why can't we just, why can't everybody have that OBGYN relationship that my mom has, has had for 30 years? 
And once you did like, that seems like the answer, just get every woman to have their own doctor who's there is who they maybe they see like, uh, you know, uptown or they can text on their phone or just like their girlfriend. Turns out that's not really scalable. And the kind of confines of the restraints of the new healthcare system financially, there's a zillion reasons that why that won't work. And we have a massive, massive OBGYN shortage in this country, a primary care shortage, mental health care shortage. It goes on and on and on. And it realize it when you get into the weeds of it all, it's like those days are gone. Uh, and so if women and men too want relationships with the healthcare system, how do we have to redesign it to facilitate that relationship, that soul, that humanness? Uh, and I believe it's a combination of people plus tech and team-based care and all sorts of stuff like that, that are about giving women what they want and letting providers do what they do best, which is practicing medicine and letting other stuff take care of the rest. Yeah. You know, there's, I have so many questions from that, but I actually, I actually want to shift gears. I want to go a different direction. I think about, you know, you talk about this two sides of, you know, the patient and the provider, right? And one of the things we're doing different for um, Greystoke Media is this year, we're trying to follow in the footsteps of like a Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal and having like, they've got Bloomberg Live, Wall Street Journal Live, right? And, and I get to see a little bit behind the scenes because we were, my private equity fund, we were a Bloomberg New Energy Finance client for years, you know, their renewal stuff. And now our media company is a vendor of theirs. So we produce one of their podcasts on renewable energy and we make videos for them. So, and I've been thinking about like, what, what could this look like for us? And so we're building kind of like a mergers and acquisitions focused community where on one side, we've got like ultra high net worth and family offices. And then on the other side, we've got entrepreneurs that are building a business and, but thinking about it in terms of, you know, do I eventually want to sell it? Do I want to pass it on to the kids? Do I want to do an employee buyout? Like where, where is this like kind of starting with the end in mind a bit, like you were talking about before of like, not just optimizing for cash flow, but optimizing for the actual value of it. Right. And so, you know, with the aging, aging baby boomer population, healthcare is a really interesting subject for both the family offices and the private equity world. And I'm interested in you have, if you have any thoughts of, you know, people who are interested in acquisitions in the innovation part of healthcare, what, you know, if you were advising a private equity fund or a large family office and they're making decisions, what are things as an insider that you think maybe outside investors may not, you know, might benefit from some advice about? Great question. And super interesting. Well, the last nine months in healthcare have been ripe with more disruption and innovation than many would say the last decade. So it's a very exciting time to be an entrepreneur and an investor in healthcare. But I also think there's a lot of like tricks in many ways to avoid. So there's so many new trends and tailwinds, virtual, oh my gosh, the healthcare system's finally being digitized and virtual care and Zoom with your doctor has taken off. Well, we've had that technology for more than a decade. That's been a technical problem. It's been an incentive problem and a payment model problem. And so I think to just take that example, like it's very easy to just like look at all these virtual care companies being like, oh, I'm just gonna like throw money into virtual care. Well, virtual care is a tactic in my mind. And, and it's, it's one that's being heavily commoditized. You know, now t- more than 50% of our care is delivered virtually or very much riding the virtual train. And I say this, but anyone anywhere can set up a Zoom and Zoom deliver medicine now. So what's what's the moat there? So, so that's an example of like a really exciting tailwind, but not the core innovation that I think is, you know, ownable anymore or was going to make a company uh, long lasting and 
10 years from now, delivering virtual care is table stakes and not like a moat or a differentiated business, if that makes sense. So virtual is a, a really exciting thing, but being wary of what's actually the innovation there. Is it the technology? Is it the care delivery models, the way they staff? Is it the, the what is the mode in those businesses that makes you different from any you know other virtual care delivery company out there? Some other really exciting things that I think are interesting is this, this concept of a more comprehensive view of what is quote healthcare. So there's the, you know, broader treat the person, not the patient stuff I mentioned earlier and really interesting companies that are building care delivery models to address that whole person who may have more complex needs. So city block is one that's super exciting that is designed just to serve the needs of the Medicaid uh, population, which is super exciting. Finally, we can build billion dollar businesses for the poorest people in this country, which is an incredible thing to to accomplishment, I think that we've not been kind of steered away from where we're like, how do you build businesses for, for poor people? It's like, actually, we can build massive successful businesses and improve our healthcare system when we do that, when we think about their needs in a broader, through a broader lens than quote medicine itself. And so like kind of a sub point of that is the explosion of mental health care, which has really was a huge, we had a mental health epidemic before COVID, as some people would say, that's been exacerbated with COVID as well. And some people used to not really think of that as, quote, healthcare and mental health may include everything from a meditation app to psychiatric care. And it's quite a spectrum. But thinking about mental health as connected to, quote, core healthcare, and then that being just a huge, huge opportunity and a space with massive need and opportunity for innovation is another big tailwind. The third thing that I'm most interested in, I don't have all the answers for, but I am making some big bets with Tia, I'll I'll leave it at that, is what is the future front door of the healthcare system? So this notion of, okay, maybe when you're growing up, it was your front door equivalent would be this family doctor that you went to for everything from like pink eye to a broken leg to like having a baby, right? So there was like one person that was like, you like what migraine medication you could, I guess you didn't text them, but you may have like called them and asked them that, or maybe you didn't Google it. And some people would say Google's the front door. Um, But our pharmacist was the same thing. Like we all knew the pharmacist by first name, you know? Right, right. All these things. And and so now we have, I think it's, it's a very fragment, it's very fragmented systems. The one hand information is more accessible than ever before, but misinformation is also more accessible than ever before. So some people say Google's the front door to the healthcare system uh, because it's the first place people turn. There's a, I would say a class of insurance companies, the Oscars of the world that, you know, more innovative players that are trying to make your insurance company the first place you turn. I like to say, you know, I might get all these benefits from my insurance company that I have no idea what they are. Uh, it's like, do I turn my insurance company? Is that who I trust when I have a healthcare problem? Like, I don't think so. Some people might say your employer as the self-insured employers and your, your employer as the sort of conduit through which you actually get to access healthcare services for the mass majority of people in this country, which is a very complicated system when you take a step back and think about it, it has a lot of consequences. You lose your job, you lose healthcare. That may be the front door to your access to all these benefits and services. And then other people, I would say more in the TIA camp, you would say that there's should be people specific front door raised with brands and messengers and care delivery platforms designed for different populations. But it's definitely not the traditional hospital. It's not uh, that it used to be. And the healthcare has left the hospital is a kind of a, a mega theme and everything that I think was already happening pre-COVID, but again, was has accelerated in response to COVID with people wanting to really avoid hospitals at all costs. 
for a lot of practical reasons and seeking to get care information or whatever they may need in any possible context outside of a, health, a hospital setting. So I think that future of where do people turn for that long-term relationship for you know, more acute type care, the basic pink eye type thing, or is it, you know, things that are happening at home virtually and all these different kind of through all these different channels. And I think who can connect those channels and who can provide continuity across them from a data perspective, from a care perspective, from a relationship perspective, I think those are going to be the really interesting companies because a lot of people now can build an at-home test or to Zoom with your doctor or whatever it is, but the ability to connect those experiences to deliver a personalized care, I think is going to be kind of the next foray chapter per se, I guess, of innovation in healthcare. So I guess my next question is thinking about a healthcare provider and knowing that problem, what what would you advise them of like how to know if this is just window dressing or if people have it in the bones? When you say healthcare provider, do you mean like a doctor? I'm sorry, healthcare investor. Healthcare if I'm a healthcare investor, I'm I'm a family office. We're 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 really interested in yeah. the healthcare innovation theme. You know, how do we know what's like bells and whistles and what's core? Like, how do we know if they're like, you know, this is the wallpaper on the outside or this is really who they are on the inside? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think the classic, like what's their moat is question that is like a good, I mean, I'm not an investor, but I'm told a good investor question to ask regardless of the industry is really important because so many of these, I would call tactics or tools or versus differentiators. And so understanding what's really a differentiation versus a distribution strategy or something else is, is like a core thing uh, to, to ask. And I think I believe the things that are most ownable are relationships and brands, particularly now at a time of unprecedented distrust in our institutions. And so people, people, companies that are able to build those trusted relationships, I believe those are the tactics are becoming more and more available to more people. You know, having your own, like T has built our own proprietary booking system. It's pretty cool tech if I do say so myself, but like there's a lot of companies that have built their own booking software. That's not the reason that I think T is gonna be, I hope a billion dollar business. It's an important tool that we had to build for our patients and our providers to make our business work, but that's not, you know, that's not the differentiation. The fact, the differentiation is that when shit hits the fan, Tia is the first place that women turn to for all of their needs, regardless of what, what it is. It's healthcare that's as simple as I'm a woman, I have a need, I turn to Tia who takes care of the rest. And it's our job and our opportunity to figure out how we can deliver as many of our needs as possible. And that is a combination of tech people services that, that we do that. And we do that. We have captured, in our case, the most valuable customer in healthcare, which is the female patient. I'm interested. Do you feel like there is a mirror opportunity for men's health or not so much? It's a great question. I think about it a lot. We get a lot of requests for the male version of Tia. Yes and no. Yes. In the sense that I think if what we are trying to achieve works and when I say trying to achieve, that's like a really <laughs> ambiguous statement, but create a new type of healthcare delivery system that's personalized, that's more focused on prevention instead of treating sickness and that is truly connected online, offline across the outpatient inpatient world in a way that improves quality, reduce costs. We can do that meta thing. It's like the Mecca in healthcare. 
there like the infrastructure that we've built, the operating model, the technology absolutely could be applied to men. The difference is, is women just use healthcare more than men. And so women are better customers. And if you're the most zoomed out, like reason to invest in Dia is like women control more than 80% of the US healthcare dollars. We have more complex needs than men. And so we're better guinea pig for this new model. And we spend more money and we influence more money on behalf of our partners, our children, and our parents. And so, yes, there can and should be an equivalent built for men, but I would say it's not as good of a business and or it needs to have tweaks to the business, let's say, to make it, you know, compatible from an investor perspective. Interesting. You know, I want to talk about this thing that you just said, like the potential to become a billion dollar business, right? So I'm interested in your thoughts. I think that there's the like, you know, there's like the business news version of that where everybody wants to talk about stuff like that, right? And then there's like with your own entrepreneur communities or your own friends and family and stuff. And I find that I find myself often not sharing that part of my vision with people because I find so few other people genuinely share it. Like it could, it could be like a nice thing to say sometimes, but like the people are like, no, like they're like literally genuinely like they're like it's billion or bust, you know, like I find that much less common mm -hmm. and I find it almost like off-putting to other people that I am so intent on it. And so I, I find myself not talking about it unless someone else has brought it up first or something. Do you, do you have that experience at all? Is it different for you when you think about that goal? I never had that goal as an explicit goal. I would say more recently, it's become a goal as Tia has become, you know, let's say closer to that, you know, like that being even like something that like is even in the realm of possibility where that wasn't like a, a, a goal of mine when I started the company at all. What's your exit was like my least favorite question, raising money. I'd be like, I don't know, to build a, like make, make healthcare work for women. And that's what my goal is. So I never really had that kind of attachment to that as more healthcare companies become billion dollar businesses. I do have a goal around that, and particularly in women's health. There are, I don't know of women, a women's healthcare company that's, I think there's one in the fertility space that went public that's kind of crossed that milestone. So I have like a, another part of me is like, you know, there's a new class of unicorn digital healthcare companies that are the last two years that have kind of come about and I've made me more like cared about that goal, but it, it's definitely not something that I talk about, uh, particularly with like a, you know, non-investor crowd, let's say, I think thinking about building a company that has impact and can be long lasting and sustainable and change the way it has reverberating effects beyond the value, like financially and, you know, operationally from the, like what we do ourselves, like that's the most, I don't know if that's the right way to articulate it, but companies that are category defining that create roads and pathways for other companies to be built. That's something that's always motivated me more. The Airbnb is the world. Yes. Airbnb is worth like a zillion dollars and blows my mind. Is it crazy? It's so insane to think about, but like there's how many other businesses I've been created because of a company like that. Like that's more that type of kind of innovation and success has been more interesting to me than a certain type of valuation. Interesting. So thinking about where you are now versus three and a half, four years ago, what do you feel like are, what do you feel like are some of the biggest lessons you've learned so far? So many. How much have you guys yeah. raised total so far? We've raised uh, 32 million to date. Okay. So I'll start with, I'll, I'll give you a few different lessons. 
The first, I think most important is remembering that you're building a business for and with people. And then when I say for and with people, I mean your customer, I mean your business partner, co-founder, your employees and your investors. At the end of the day, everyone's a person and a human on the other side. And if you can't connect with those people on a human level, when shit hits the fan, it's going to be really dark. And so through the highs and the lows, you want good people in your corner. And so picking the people is the most important thing to make a company successful, but also like be able to survive emotionally along the journey. So that's the most important. The second is the importance of being absolutely obsessed about a problem. Maybe a serial entrepreneur might give you a different answer to this, but I'm very much that like I found a problem and then I figured out the business and the product versus like I knew I was like saw a market opportunity and a TAM and this and that and decided to like go after it. I just think building companies too hard to uh, approach it the other way, but that's a style thing. And so when you have that obsession about a problem, the key is staying true to your North Star, but figuring out where to iterate, where to evolve and where not to involve and uh, deciding what to do and what not to do. And then decisions on what not to do, I think are the hardest, but most important things in a business. See, those are two big ones for me. The third is just kind of to summarize where I started is I talked about the importance of interdisciplinary teams and collaborative, you know, collaborative thinking cultures something that I really wanted to build at TIA. And I think kind of the meta lesson there is being intentional upfront about building a company, not just a product or a business and recognizing if you're someone as a founder who wants to build a company or just a product or a business, because as you get later and later stage, I think so much of your time is actually, the early days are like product market fit and being a product person is really important. And now company building is even more important, but being a company oriented founder at the beginning, I think allowed us to set up a, very distinct culture from the get-go that has enabled product innovation in an interesting way. And not all companies are designed the same, but being intentional about where, where you want to be on that spectrum, I think is really important and will impact who you, who comes work with you on the journey, the products that you build and your pathway to success. So what's an example of what that's looked like for you? So if there's a single value that defines Tia's company culture, it would be collaboration my co-founder and I have been quite obsessive about having very explicit and rigorously defined company values and principles from the early stage. And some might say we spent way too much time on this when we like didn't have product market fit and we we're like really focused on that. But it's it's been very core to attracting the people that work at TIA, particularly in an industry that's as complex and trying to bring together people like doctors and scientists and engineers and writers and designers into one company and intentionally building one company, one culture, as we say at TIA. So uh, a good example of this is like, you know, we take our medical assistants and our front desk associates through our OKR meetings and revenue numbers. And we choose to like shut down our clinics, have non-revenue generating time to take every single person in the business through our quarterly OKR meeting. And that's in service of building for and with providers, not as one team. And so these are like cultural values that impact your operations, your PLs, your ways of working, and that we've made hard choices around, but we think are really key to building a differentiated product. So that's a very practical example of like every year it comes up, we're like, should we really do that? Like that's a like, like, like that's like a very expensive meeting. And you get bigger and bigger, these these choices become harder, but because we did it when we were small and now as we're, you know, we've grown from doubled in size from 40 people to 80 people since COVID started and we'll cross a hundred this 
you know, by the end of the quarter, I think, you know, those decisions have implications that are very core to our ways of working and what attracts people to come work at TIA. So that's an example. And, and what specifically do you feel like is the benefit of that? I think that's super interesting, but, but for you, what do you like about that? What do you feel like the benefit to the team, the culture is by continuing to do that? It's motivation and buy-in to the vision and why work at TIA instead of for a provider or a medical assistant, like why should you work at TIA instead of Kaiser or another doctor's office or a hospital. It's like, because you want to work in an environment that's innovative and get to interact with people that aren't just doctors. And why as an engineer or designer, do you work at TIA versus another tech company that may pay you more or do whatever? It's like, cause you actually get to build with your user, the patient, the provider in really profound ways. And seeing our engineers like interact in exam rooms with doctors and we could do that before COVID was like the most, the coolest thing in the world. And there's something that I constantly build with the provider, not for the provider is it, it makes a better product. I ultimately believe it's not just like a morale thing, but actually makes a better product when everybody can be an idea generator. And in order to be an idea generator requires all being on the same page about where we're going and why. I love it. It kind of reminds me a little bit. I remember being surprised when I was on that tour at Google. Malene was like, oh yeah, this is where the town hall meetings are. I don't know what those like, the Thursday you can ask the boss yeah. anything. Yeah. Like that's wild, especially with an organization as big as Google. For people who don't know that meeting, what do you, what do you guys call it at Google? OKR meeting. Uh, okay. It's a similar concept. Actually, no, sorry. That was the TGIF. It was called TGIF. OKR meeting was once a quarter, but every Friday, TGIF, it used to be Fridays. Now it's Thursdays, or it was Thursdays when I was there. Was it? global meeting <laughs> around the world where anybody in the company could ask a question to the CEO or whoever was presenting and different leaders in the company. Yeah, how, how many employees at Google? I don't know now. I mean, I left four years ago. When I left, it was like 60,000. I'm sure it's like double that now. I, I don't know, but a lot. But it's a, it's a tradition that still holds strong. And it's one, I think, where there was a huge amount of transparency between leadership accountability and environments that enabled anyone to ask questions and share ideas. And I think that creates a really unique culture and you experience as the user every day in, in their products. Yeah. You think about like the Toyotas of the world or these organizations that really preach the like, get down, get down to where the work is happening. Don't stay in your ivory tower boardroom meetings, you know, and like a practice like that, it almost like brings the factory floor to the CEO to have any individual coder or somebody across the whole organization can ask a question, you know, 50 levels above them in the org chart, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think in going back to just like healthcare specifically, in even in a more nuanced way, tools that are built for doctors or care providers are so bad and they're so obviously not built by anybody who practices medicine, myself included that it, there's just this massive disconnect and you see like, okay, you know, we have this provider burnout is this huge issue in healthcare. Like providers are this the highest burnout rate, horrendous suicide rate, all these issues that are so horrible. And you look at the tools that they use and you're like, oh my God, I would quit too. Like there's no way that like anyone who like works in the tech world and uses anything innovative would use one of these tools. Yeah. And, and it's so clearly that this was not built with the end user in mind. And so you have to like completely overhaul how you build and design things to counteract that. And we've, we aren't perfect and we have a lot of work to do there too. But I think from a cultural and operational perspective, have gone through great, great lengths to overcome that. 
you know, my mom was a nurse for 35 years and my sister is currently a registered nurse. And I think about the kind of comments that they make. And it was highly evident that the people running the organizations they worked for were not deeply into human-centered design. So it does feel like a pretty unfair advantage for you. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've covered a bunch of things here. Let's maybe finish off going a different direction. What do you see coming down the pipe that maybe not everybody else sees for the future of healthcare? Wow. Well, I'll share a half-baked thought, if I may, that I've been meditating on over my attempt to take a vacation without taking a vacation during COVID the last two weeks, which is this tension between highly, highly personalized one-on-one care delivery models and you know, precision medicine, like the future is personalized. It's all about you and your data and your biometric this and like, you know, your preferences and all that with these things that are highly, highly communal. And COVID has again exposed this like huge tension between that where it's like, we're all in this together. You can think about what's like you want in your body and your needs. Yet, like if you don't get the vaccine, And like, I get the vaccine, I'm still like impacted and like all of these things. And how do we evolve our healthcare system? If it used to be one size fits all, yet one size fits all didn't work. And now we kind of are trying to go like one-to-one personalized, yet there's all this, like, there is still this societal implication, societal implications. How do we have both highly personalized and highly communal approaches to healthcare? The COVID vaccine is just like kind of an example of that. But I think a lot about, I've always thought about care through community as a core thing that women want and that women want before COVID and isolation, when you were experiencing all these things alone, women want to connect with other women who are experiencing the same healthcare struggle, whether that's miscarriage, postpartum depression, what have you, all these experiences that are both highly individual, individual and highly communal and how do you create space for both of them? And then you bring on some like insane life event that's transforming our worlds in ways we don't even know like COVID. And I think it where the outcomes amongst different populations are so extremely different, yet we're all in it together. And not just from a medical and health perspective, from an economic perspective, you know, social welfare perspective, it goes on and on. And so how do we think about the future of a healthcare system that's both personalized and communal? And I don't have the answer, but I think it's not one or the other. I think it's both. And so trying to figure out how we thread that needle is a core thing I'm thinking a lot about these days. Yeah, interesting. Well, maybe maybe for our final theme here, you know, I know we we touched just a minute that you're not necessarily like just building to sell as quick as possible. Can you talk about any thoughts that you have of, you know, building for the long term or how you think about being able to sell or being able to like keep it for your own family office, your stake in the long term? Or like, can you talk about how those future thoughts change the decisions you make today? Yeah, it's a great question and something I think about, have been thinking about more and more as, you know, tea becomes less about me and my wants. There's lots of stakeholders that I need to think about from my employees to our investors, et cetera. So what I want becomes increasingly (laughs) less important in many ways and need to think about what's the right thing for the collective good. And so, and that may be, and I've always been drawn to what's the right thing for women and our, and providers are like our users ultimately, and how do we build a business that can sustain and be long lasting. So like a quick flip has not been my motivation, but 
figuring out how to crack a business model that has the legs to be long lasting and can scale and provide long-term value is, is been really important to our trajectory uh, and our future. And at a time of when healthcare business models are changing because payment models are changing, it's really interesting. I think a lot about at the end of the day, the focus on creating long-term value for our customers. And if we do that, there will be lots of buyers or pathways to continue being an independent successful company. But like whether it's the worst pandemic of our lifetime, people still need healthcare. Like we are not a fad. People still have babies. Like people still need to go like get healthcare. And so to use like the anti-fad business in many ways. So it's like figuring out how do you make the right decisions that create think optimize the right amount of short-term value because that is important when you're building a venture scale business speed seizing market opportunity being first mover all that is really important and i think balancing the short term and the long term and where do you pivot and where do you not is another set of questions that keeps me up at night still and then how do you continually build for the long term knowing that so this can be whether it's a yeah, independent business or something that we sell to and how, how do we do both well, so like, I'm guessing some of your investors are, are venture funds. Yes. And, you know, most of them probably have like a, you know, depending what's what what year of the fund <laughs> your investment was, you know, you probably got a maximum of 10, 12 years for some of them more like six, eight years, right? Yeah. And thinking about knowing that they need their exit, but you're trying to build something that, you know, where people get to have 30-year relationships <laughs> with providers potentially, how does that, I mean, what, what's an example of something that you, a decision you make in the business, knowing you need the optionality for, for the venture funds to get their return. And you want this like patient provider relationship to still be smooth after that transition. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think the thing that we think a lot about is in many ways, narrative and optics. So how do you tell the right story of the business and make the right decisions that enable the company to be valued in the right way. And so the big thing for us is T is a technology platform that enables clinical services, not a clinical services business. And how do you, what are the decisions that you make that enable that statement to be true? Because we actually do deliver clinical services, but clinical services businesses and technology companies are valued very different in the eyes of the market. So that's a really good example. Short-term and like between our series A and our series B, like proving that we're truly a technology platform that enables clinical services versus just a provider who practices medicine is really important. So those, there's a lot of different ways you can do that, but that's like a, a 12 next 12 month goal of mine or something that I really need to do and think strategically about and have been since closing our series A. Cause you're those, you're on a different trajectory The more clinical services business path, path that's like selling to a PE roll up type of play and kind of rinse and repeating and building a business where you're shaving a couple of minutes off an appointment. Like I'm not interested in building that company. You can build huge companies in that space. There's nothing wrong with building that type of company, but like, that's not what gets me up out of bed every night. So I've had to make decisions to take money from people who want to build a different type of business and not from money from people who don't want to want me to build that type of business. So that was an important decision. And then also in terms of what T is prioritizing, it's like, how are we prioritizing the right things and executing on them to demonstrate the right story so that we can be on this pathway, not that one. This pathway being the technology platform, not a traditional clinical services business that's just well-run and has a cool looking waiting room. So that was a, is, has been a very 
big decision for me from the beginning. My co-founder and I were joking last night about like the, at our seed stage, when we pivoted and raised a second seed to open up our first clinic in New York, the big investor question was, so are you a clinic with an app or an app with a clinic? And we were like, hated this question. And we're like, oh, like we're not a clinic with an app. We're not with a clinic. We're like, neither of those were a platform. Like we're a platform. And uh, what does that mean? What is the platform? Uh, and figuring out how to like build proof points underneath that to demonstrate to current and future investors and ultimately our end customers and figuring out a business model that upholds your story is a really important thing. So I think the last thing I'll say there is, I think one of the hardest things in a business that's as complex as Tia, or I would describe as a full stack healthcare company, which means you build walls and employ doctors and technology and build a brand and community and all and, and, and is sequencing. And there's in many ways, endless opportunities of things we can do that women and our two customers, patients and providers want from us. The question is what must we do now? And what, what can we do later? And a lot of that there's like, what's the right thing? Like, you know, COVID happened. We had to like completely change course from like a ethical perspective to be able to provide baseline healthcare services for women in New York city at a time of a public health crisis that were very different than what we raised money to go do. But then you also have to move the needle against key kind of proof points that tell the right story that demonstrate your platform and kind of do some of these other things later. So sequencing is really challenging but I think really critical to keeping that optionality from a buyer, you know, from a, should I sell or keep, you know, raising more money or try to go for the IPO thing or whatever specs or whatever they're calling them these days, all these different things. And having optionality, I think is around, really around doing things in the right order that continue to build a mix of short and long-term value for your customers and your investors at the same time and finding a way to thread the needle between them. Yeah. It's almost like what can you do that leads the investors or others to come to their own conclusion, your platform rather than just claiming it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that's, I think also really we've struggled with, and I think we're getting better at is giving investors comps. So everyone wants the Uber for this, the Dropbox for that, and we, in many ways, are inventing a new type of company. And you like to think that investors want that, but they don't, I've learned, or most of them don't. And they like to pattern match. And unless there's a pattern to match you against, they don't know how to place you. And so it's on you as an entrepreneur to figure out how to say, T is like X, but different because of Y. And make that super clear and succinct. And that was a, a hard lesson for me to learn. Uh, I love the idea of creating a new category of a company and a new business model. It turns out, I don't think people like that as much as they like to think that they do. <laughs> Interesting. Well, this has been great. Well, besides going to asktia.com, checking you guys out there, where's the best place for people to follow you or connect with you? Or um, On Twitter or Instagram, it's my full name, Carolyn Witte. Would love to, to keep the conversation going about innovation, healthcare, personalized medicine, lots of big topics that, uh, that I love to chat about. Very cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me.